Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we infuse weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Joanne Chang. On this edition, we'll feature epidemics of smallpox and stem cells. Food fuels the carbon debate. The first Australian Food Mile study has been presented at the Agri-Food 14th Conference in Brisbane. A major finding of the study is that the average basket of food has travelled over 70,000 kilometres from producer to consumer. This is two and a half times around Australia. This, This estimate is based on a basket of 29 different items including cereals, meat, fruit, vegetables, dairy and even chocolate. It uses a standard known as the Healthy Food Access Basket. Four of the 29 items were imported and accounted for 50,000 out of the 70,000 kilometres of travel. The study hopes to highlight the carbon footprint created when we transport our food. But transport is only one part of the total carbon footprint, according to Associate Professor Hugh Campbell of the University of Otago, Dunedin, New Zealand. He claims that it takes half the energy to get a New Zealand-grown lamb onto a dinner table in the UK than it does their own home-grown UK lambs. This is partly because animals in Europe need to be housed during winter, increasing the costs and carbon footprint to produce them. Food produced in the third world might also be more energy efficient because it uses less machinery and fertilisers. It is hoped that this type of study will make people think carefully about where food comes from and how much energy is required to get it to the consumer. Facebook sprung in an advertising campaign. The internet social networking site has been forced to change advertising methods because users feared for their privacy. Facebook's beacon tool has several commercial websites embedded in it. These websites were able to pick up data on user activity, such as online shopping, and automatically send alerts to the user's Facebook friends to tell them what they had bought and provide a link to the website they had bought it from. Users had been given opportunities to stop their name being used for referrals, but these opportunities were easy to miss. Thousands of Facebook users were angered by the loss of privacy. Facebook users still cannot reject all future sharing with the Beacon tool, but now will have to actively agree before their online buying activities are passed on to other Facebook users. Executives from both Facebook and commercial partners have defended the advertising tool. They believe users were to appreciate it because it was a more personalised style of advertising and would help users to better enjoy their online experience. Users like Jessica Parker, an office manager in Charleston, US, disagree. She says people are willing to sacrifice some privacy, but this goes too far and Facebook should be careful or users will leave. Younger skin turns back the clock on ageing. A new scientific discovery can reverse the ageing of skin cells. It involves changing the expression of genes in older skin cells so that the skin itself becomes more youthful. It is different to Botox in this respect, which targets the muscles underneath the skin. Howard Chang and his team at Stanford University School of Medicine in California, the US, made the discovery. 
they found that a specific gene called NF-kappa-B is more active in old age. This in turn activates other genes that are involved in skin ageing. Chang genetically engineered mice with the ability to switch off the NF-kappa-B gene. The switching off process is triggered by a special drug called 4-hydroxytamoxifen applied to the skin with a patch. They used older mice which have thinner skin than younger ones. Wearing the patches caused a 75% thickening of the skin. But there is a long way to go before these youthful patches can be used on humans. The effect is only temporary, so the drug would need to be applied regularly to maintain the youthful effect. The NF-kappa-B gene is also important for the immune system, and switching it off could make people more prone to infection. For the moment, our skin will have to age gracefully with the rest of us. And finally, new information on an evil twin. Long ago, Venus, commonly regarded as the Earth's twin world, might not have been as different from Earth as we thought. Physical pressures, temperatures and weather on the two planets work in a similar way. Present-day Venus has lightning and electrical discharges in its atmosphere just like Earth. Both planets are about 4.5 billion years old. Between 1 and 3 billion years ago, Venus used to have liquid water oceans just like the Earth. These discoveries were confirmed by Dr. Harkin Svedhelm of the European Space Agency's Venus Expression Mission. The mission was launched in November 2005 and reached Venus in April 2006 to give new information on the twin world. At some point in the planet's history, the twins began to separate. Venus's oceans boiled away and became water vapour in the Venus atmosphere. Its atmosphere is now mainly carbon dioxide and clouds of sulfuric acid. Venus also never developed a magnetic field to protect its atmosphere. Harmful rays from the Sun ionise the gases in the atmosphere and Venus is gradually losing these gases into space. Its atmosphere gives it a surface temperature of up to 400 degrees Celsius and surface pressure 100 times greater than Earth. Hopefully future investigations will shed more light on how such similar planets became so different. And that was the news with Patrick Ruby. Stem cells hold a promise of a complete cure for every illness and injury. They even restore memory in mice with Alzheimer's disease. Is there any medical technology that doesn't have an ethical and religious controversy around it? Ian Wolfe looks at a new source of stem cells. Every fertile woman is a source of stem cells that could heal people. The stem cells will be harvested not from killing embryos, but from menstrual blood. Menstrual blood offers a constant source of stem cells. Although nothing is killed, this development will inevitably offend traditional religious groups, who see menstruating women as unclean. It also carries its own ethical dilemmas. The lining of the uterus fills with a layer of endometrial cells when women are in their fertile part of the month. Carolyn Gargett of Monash University in Victoria was the first to identify endometrial stem cells in the uterine lining. It's now been found that women shed the stem cells during their period. The cells replicate themselves without changing into specialised cells. They can be made to differentiate into many different cell types under the right conditions, and they show the identifiable cell surfaces of stem cells. Stem cells made from adult skin cells using viruses, however, pose the risk of causing cancer, and have not yet been proved to be real stem cells that can turn into any kind of body cell. 
Scientists at the private Biocommunications Research Institute in Wichita, Kansas, found that the stem cells from menstrual blood reproduce more quickly than stem cells from umbilical cords collected after a baby's birth. With menstrual blood stem cells, they're able to make nine different types of new cells, including fat, muscle, bone and nerve cells. The Cryocell Corporation in Florida has patented a collection, processing and freeze storage technique with the foul French name CL for women to harvest their own stem cells every month from their own menstrual blood. The stem cells may be used to save their owners from heart disease, diabetes, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, spinal cord injury and the diseases of old age. The company suggests that there's a good chance that the stem cells might be able to help a woman's close relatives without rejection, and maybe even people not related. This crucial idea hasn't been tested yet, but the benefits to menstruating women of collecting their own stem cells are clear enough for there to be a strong market for a collection kit. The kit on sale includes a menstrual cup, collection tubes, a prepaid FedEx air bell for return shipment to Cryocell, and comprehensive instructions. For $500, you get processing and the first year storage. After that, it's $100 per year, until such times as cells actually become useful. It's a gamble for those who can afford the fee, as it's possible that they'll never need the cells. It now only remains for the kit to be miniaturised and built into tampons. The same company controversially stores cord blood for mothers who want compatible stem cells available if their baby ever needs them. The controversy is over the ethics. Stem cells from cord blood may be able to help not only your baby, but many other babies who may actually be sick, or yours as well. So there are two systems in place. One is private, where only the mother and baby have access to baby's stem cells for their whole life, just in case they ever need them. The private banks have never had a withdrawal. The stem cells have yet to be used. The other system is a shared pool of cord blood, like regular blood and organ banks. The second way is for people who are happy to share their baby stem cells to save a stranger's life, hoping that enough other people contribute so that their baby will also be helped from the common pool of cord blood if they ever need it. There have been thousands of withdrawals from the public banks. So far, the private menstrual blood bank has jumped in first. We'll have to see how long it takes to set up a community menstrual blood stem cell bank. With the population of menstruating women in the world numbering in the billions, a community menstrual blood stem cell bank could usher in a new medical revolution affordable by everybody, made from what has previously been thrown away. If you're in desperate need because of illness or injury, you'll be glad that blood banks are publicly available to anyone in need, and not just to a wealthy few who can afford to keep their blood on ice. Start a public bank of menstrual stem cells today and save the world, not just yourself. That was Ian Wolfe, investigating stem cells collected from menstrual blood.
The Horrible History of Smallpox Epidemics Smallpox goes back far into history, but it's difficult to determine the pathogen behind an outbreak from contemporary records. The lens of history, however, starts to clear around 430 BCE, when the plague of Athens devastated the city and killed about a third of the population. Originally thought to be the bubonic plague, current thinking is that it may have been smallpox. The Antonine Plague, which swept through Italy in 165 to 180 CE, and the Plague of Cyprian, 251 to uh, 266, were thought, thought to be smallpox or measles. India is the site of the next recorded smallpox epidemic. Around the year 400, records mention the disease where the pustules are red, yellow and white, and they are accompanied by burning pain. The skin seems studded with grains of rice. Survivors created a goddess, Sitala, representing the disease. It seems smallpox had reached Europe by about 581, but the next major impact was about a thousand years later when it reached the Americas. Some believe that the death of 90-95% to 95% of the native population was caused by introduced diseases, with smallpox the main culprit. Why this impact? Jared Diamond suggests that Europeans were resistant to the disease. As deadly as it was, it was still less deadly. But perhaps the natives had no idea of how to cope with such a disease, and for all the problems with European medicine, it was better than nothing. An African slave amongst a Spanish expedition arriving in 1520 was believed to be the first case. They were defeated by a competing Spanish expedition, which then could succumb to the smallpox. This expedition were in turn defeated by the Aztecs, who then contracted the disease. Most of the Aztec army and about 25% of the overall population died as a result. The effects on the Inca Empire were even more de devastating, perhaps because of the better roads, made, and that the situation was made worse by the resulting power vacuum. The disease continued north, striking Native American populations. The French and Indian Wars of 1754 to 1767 saw the first use of smallpox as a biological weapon, when British forces in North America distributed blankets from smallpox patients to Native Americans who had been collaborating with the French. Around this time, variolation or inoculation appeared, though it, had been, though it had been known in India as early as 1000 BCE. Knowledge of the process spread from Turkey to the UK and Europe in the 1700s. But inoculation had its critics, including preachers who claimed that smallpox was God's punishment and inoculation was a tool of Satan. Reminiscent of this resistance, the medical procedure of resuscitation had been criticised when it was first introduced as taking lives back from God. But over time, more people adopted inoculation, even though it had a roughly 2% chance of killing the patient.
and then Jenner d- discovered immunisation. As with inoculation, societies opposing smallpox immunisation emerged, but over time the prevalence of the disease was reduced. And more recently, it has been completely eliminated. Transmission or plant false transmission, the CRM114 is to be switched into all the receiver circuits. The emergency base code prefix is to be set on the dials of the CRM. This will block any transmission other than those preceded by code prefix. Stand by to set code prefix. Roger. Ready to set code prefix. Set code prefix. Prefix set. Lock code prefix. Code prefix locked. Switch all receiver circuits to CRM discriminators. All circuits switch to CRM discriminators. Check auto destruct circuits. Auto destruct circuits checked. Primary target, the ICBM complex at Laputa. Target reference, Yankee Golf Tango 360. 30-megaton nuclear device fused for airburst at 10,000 feet. 20-megaton nuclear device will be used if first malfunction. Otherwise, proceed to secondary target. Missile complex, seven miles east of Barshaw. Target reference. November Bravo X-ray 108 used air burst at 10 check 12,000 feet In 1958, the Soviet Union calls for the eradication of smallpox from planet Earth. And in 1967, an international team formed under the leadership of an American, Donald Henderson. Each outbreak would be contained by isolating cases and vaccinating everyone who lived close by, a process known as ring vaccination. Smallpox only infects people and there are no passive carriers. For all its virulence, this fundamental weakness made the initiative possible. 
It was a massive effort. In India and Bangladesh, progress was obstructed by religion and civil strife, along with natural disasters and monsoon rains. In fear of offending the goddess associated with the disease, many Hindus refused the vaccine. In some countries, such as the Sudan, civil war threatened the eradication attempts. The teams put themselves in danger, but surprisingly none were hurt. Stories circulate about the warring sides making way for the vaccination teams. The last major outbreak of smallpox was in Yugoslavia in 1972. After an infected pilgrim from the Middle East returned to Kosovo, 175 people were infected with 35 deaths. Authorities declared martial law, enforced quarantine, and undertook massive revaccination of the population with the help of the WHO, something vaguely reminiscent of the Vietnamese response to SARS. The last naturally occurring cases of the more deadly variola major and its less virulent cousin, variola minor, were respectively diagnosed in Bangladesh in 1975 and in Somalia in 1977. The global eradication of smallpox was endorsed by the World Health Assembly in 1980. The US had provided $300 million in funding. For me, the global eradication of a disease from the world stands out as one of history's great accomplishments, on par with the founding of the Library at Alexandria around the 3rd century BCE. It tells us that vaccines are effective at treating disease, and also that an institution can work, work towards its own end, contrary to those who claim government will have a vested interest in some problem continuing and will not act to eliminate us. Some problems will always be with us, but that does not stop us from continuously reducing their impact. In any case, smallpox could be eliminated. Around the world, thousands of people apply themselves vigorously to putting themselves out of a job. It would have been a wonderful thing to be a part of. I envy those involved. In 1978, smallpox escaped containment in a research laboratory in Birmingham, England, with a researcher dying of the disease and the laboratory's head committing suicide. As a result, all known stocks of smallpox were destroyed, except for the stocks at the United States Center for Disease Control and Prevention and the Russian Vector State Research Center of Biology, Virology and Biotechnology in Siberia. Smallpox also has a history of development as a weapon. In World War II, scientists from the United Kingdom and the United States tried to develop smallpox into a weapon, but this was never carried through as its effectiveness would be countered by the availability of the vaccine. The small, first smallpox weapons factory in the Soviet Union was established in 1947 in the city of Zagorsk near Moscow. An especially virulent strain was brought from India by a medical team sent to help eradicate the virus. The virus was manufactured and stockpiled in large quantities throughout the 1970s and 1980s. A production line to manufacture smallpox on an industrial scale was launched in the Vector Institute in 1990. An outbreak of weaponised smallpox occurred during testing in the 1970s when a research ship strayed too close to an island where it was tested. It is now the group's lobby for the destruction of the last remaining smallpox stocks. Apparently the destruction of the virus was ordered several times between 1993 and 1996, but it didn't actually happen. Smallpox, a length of DNA with a particular coding sequence and housed in a protein carrier, has caused many deaths and suffering over the last few millennia. But is this something we can judge as being evil? Something guilty, something we must eliminate? 
We have eliminated species before without trying. We, humanity, are certainly capable of it. But rather than blaming the virus, the concern is that so long as stocks of the virus remain, they could be used as weapons. It's a difficult issue. Live smallpox gives us insights into how the body's immune system works, which could help cure other diseases. But it's also a temptation for the military. But what of the wild variant, which causes the disease Alastrim, which is still present in the world? How much does that tell us? How much mutation would the Alastrim virus need to become something of similar virulence to smallpox? But perhaps it is the most virulent smallpox in action that tells us the most about the body's immune system. The best compromise not, might not be to eliminate it, but rather to ensure that the stocks are held by institutions with a clear line of responsibility to trusted international bodies like the UN. But we sometimes get paranoid about governments and the UN, don't we? Government and institutions are themselves the product of human beings. So, ultimately, what poses the greatest threat, a virus or human beings themselves? My major reference for this feature was Wikipedia. Yvonne Cossart, Emeritus Professor of Infectious Diseases at Sydney University, was kind enough to answer some questions during its development. That was John August with Smallpox. That's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, give your feedback, comments, suggestion, or wild, passionate praise, then send email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. DiffusionRadio.com Contributing to the program were John August, Ian Wolfe, Lachlan Watmore. Diffusion has been produced and panelled by Lachlan Watmore in the studios of 2SER Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Joanne Chang. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wiring next week on Diffusion Science Radio. (laughs) 